0: Merry Christmas from from the Monsteropolis crew. Uh, this is Monsteropolis, a show about anomalies, legends, and monsters. This is your favorite show of the year, hosted by your three merry ghoulish leaders. Wow! <laughs> I'm one of your hosts. My name is Seth Breedlove. I'm joined, as always, by my pal, Mark Matsky.
1: Merry Christmas,
0: Seth. Merry Christmas, Mark. <laughs> Merry Christmas, Heather.
2: Oh, Merry Christmas.
0: Thank you. And our other pal, our other pagan pal,
2: <laughs>
0: Heather Mosier.
2: Hello. Merry Christmas.
0: Merry Christmas. Happy holidays, I dare say.
2: Oh. oh, no.
0: <laughs> someone just tuned out. Somewhere someone <laughs> just tuned out. have a cool Yule. Yeah, cool mm. Yule from the crew, from your boo crew. Oh, cool Yule From the boo crew. Why didn't it, Andy, restart, <laughs> cut that part in Corrupted and make it sound that. like, uh, yeah, make it sound like I just <laughs> yeah. got that on the fly. All right. Um, hey, dare I say Merry Christmas, Andy Matsky, behind the yeah, camera? Yay. Merry Christmas,
2: guys. All right. Aww
0: so mm-hmm. soft spoken, <laughs> Andy wearing his moth boy's t shirt mm-hmm. right now, mm-hmm. along with his fancy bracelet mm-hmm. what what can we, bracelet sounds a little feminine for me. I don't know wrist if you know bands. me I we own a jeep band. now so <laughs> let's 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 punch that up a little <laughs> wristband I'm wearing my sweet wristband made for me by Haria. Mm-hmm. Mosser. unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable talent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, nope. n- no, they are cool though. They are color coded. So this is this is real. Aria made us mm-hmm. bracelets. Mm-hmm. They're color coded. Mark is wearing the Mothman mm-hmm. variant. Yes. Yeah. Andy, uh, I'm wearing Flatwoods Monster, and mm-hmm. Andy is wearing Omicron. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 are you. Oh boy! Okay. Wow. All right. So this Sorry, week Annie. we do this every year. This is our much heralded, beloved. Uh, what is this? Our third or fourth time doing it. It's mm-hmm. it's a fourth fourth <laughs> Christmas spooky stories episode where we read a spooky story. Um, I'm going to read my story first. So I'm just going to tell you guys right now. You could skip. <laughs> Uh,
3: gets, I'll put a timestamp yeah. right here uh, Andy will
0: put a timestamp in so you no. can get out of my horrific reading of the story I'm about to read uh, my son Tommy is in the next room uh, he's playing a virtual reality game so currently we're okay but that could end at any minute yes. so I'm going to go ahead and get into my story um, and then uh, Andy just c- quick note here when we do this show typically <clears throat> We had some crackling fire yule logs okay.
2: mm-hmm. and
0: maybe even a little spooky background music. So if, you, if you're watching this, probably Squad, because I'm assuming he's cutting out everything I'm saying right now. Um, <laughs> no, you're no. probably <laughs> hearing those sounds already. The sounds of the spooky yule. All right. My story this year is called A Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad by M.R. James. And I think we've done this before. I've done this I've done this for author before. I've written I've written this story mm. myself mm. under the name MR James. Um, so anyway, we're gonna read these stories. Do should we do like a quick background on why we do this? Just Yeah.
1: Okay. <clears throat> very quick. I mean you know, there's the song It's the most wonderful time of the year has that obscure line that says uh, tales of, you know, scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. And sometimes people are confused by that, but there is a, a long-standing tradition of storytelling around the hearth or the fireplace or what have you. And going back, you know, at least to Victorian times and even before, where that was the entertainment in a household. And you had a number of people together for a party, family get-together, it was who could come up with the most convincing or scary story. So this is sort of harkening back to that and, and this time of year being a
0: liminal time. So I'll just I like drop it. that on you. Boom. Mm. It's the time of year when the veil is very thin. Oh Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad, by M.R. James. I, I don't know, every year I wanna I want to do something, like read in a voice or something, and then I start doing it and then get bored like five minutes in and then just switch to my normal voice. So I'm just gonna read this in my normal voice, okay. all right? <clears throat> I suppose you will be getting away pretty soon now. Full term is over, professor, said a person not in the story to the professor of Ontario. Okay, you <laughs> know <laughs> this is something this is the guy this is this is this is the guy i've read this idiot before like he he can't he's the most ridiculous run-on sentences one of the greatest authors of all time mr james the author thing i do apologize for idiot thing (laughs) i my bad um the professor was young neat and precise in speech yes he said my friends have been making me take up golf this term and i mean to go to the east coast in point of fact to burnstow i dare say you know it for a week or 10 days to improve my game i hope to get off tomorrow oh parkins said his neighbor on the other side if you are going to burnstow i wish you would look at the site of the templars Preceptory, and let me know if you think it would be any good to have a dig there in the summer <clears throat> it was as you might suppose a person of antiquarian pursuits who said this but since he merely appears in this prologue there is no need to give his entitlements (laughs) certainly said parkins the professor if you will describe to me whereabouts the site is i will do my best to give you an idea of the lie of the land when i get back or i could write to you about it if you would tell me where you were likely to be don't trouble to do that thanks it's only that i'm thinking of taking my family in that direction in the long and it occurred to me that as very few of the English preceptories have ever been properly planned, I might have an opportunity of doing something useful on off days. The professor rather sniffed at the idea that planning out a preceptory could be described as useful. His neighbor continued, the site, I doubt if there is anything showing above ground, must be down quite close to the beach now. The sea has encroached tremendously, as you know, all along that bit of coast. I should think from the map that it might be about three quarters of a mile from the globe Inn at the north end of the town. Where are you going to stay? Well, at the Globe Inn, as a matter of fact, said Parkins. I've engaged a room there. I couldn't get it anywhere else. Most of the lodging houses are shut up in winter, it seems. And as it is, they tell me that the only room of any size I can really have is a double bedded one, and that they haven't a corner in which to store the other bed and so on. But I must have a fairly large room, for I am taking some books down, and mean to do a bit of work. And though I don't have quite though I don't quite fancy having an empty bed not to speak of two in what I may call for the time being my study I suppose I can manage to rough it a short time I shall be there you know what it's always been difficult reading these stories before because I uh, I pick like websites where I can hardly see the text it's worse when I can feel Andy watching <laughs> me just waiting for me to screw up so he can shake his head in disappointment <laughs> Um, <clears throat> to leave the room no. <laughs> do you call having an extra bed in your room roughing it, Parkins? Said a bluff a person opposite. Look here. I shall come down and occupy it for a bit. It'll be company for you. The professor quivered but managed to laugh in a courteous manner. By all means, Rogers, there's nothing I should like better, but I'm afraid you would find it rather dull. You don't play golf, do you? No, thank heaven, said rude Mr. Rogers. <coughs> That's not how I would ever describe Mr. Roger. <laughs> well, you see, when I'm not writing, I shall most likely be out on the links. And that, as I say, would be rather dull for you, I'm afraid. Oh, I don't know. There's certain to be somebody I know in the place. But of course, if you don't want me, speak the word, Barkins. I shan't be offended. Truth, as you always tell us, is never offensive. That is not true. Parkins was indeed scrupulously polite and strictly truthful. It is to be feared that Mr. Rogers sometimes practice upon his knowledge of these characteristics. In Parkin's breast, there was a conflict now raging, which for a moment or two did not allow him to answer. That interval being over, he said, well, if you want the exact truth, Rogers, I was considering whether the room I speak of would really be large enough to accommodate us both comfortably, and also whether, mind I shouldn't have said this if you hadn't pressed me, You would not constitute something in the nature of a hindrance to my work rogers laughed loudly well done parkins he said it's all right i promise not to interrupt your work don't you disturb yourself about that no i won't come if you don't want me but i thought i should do so nicely to keep the ghosts off here he might have been seen to wink and then nudge his next neighbor parkins might also have been seen to become pink I beg pardon, Parkins, Rogers continued. I oughtn't to have said that. I forgot you didn't like levity on these topics. Well, Parkins said, as you have mentioned the matter, I freely own that I do not like careless talk about what you call ghosts. A man in my position, he went on raising his voice a little, cannot, I find, be too careful about appearing to sanction the current beliefs on such subjects. subjects. As you know, Rogers, or as you ought to know, for I think I have never concealed my views. No, you certainly have not, old man, but... Put in Roger's Soto voice. I hope this goes on. These guys just yammer for freaking ever. On the following day, Parkins did as he had hoped, succeed in getting away from his college and arriving in Bernstow. The story could have started there. He was made welcome at the Globe Inn, was safely installed in the large double-bedded room of which we have heard, and was able before retiring to rest to arrange his material for work in apple pie order upon a commodious table which occupied the outer end of the room and was surrounded on three sides by windows looking out seaward. That is to say, this is still part of that one sentence. (laughs) That is to say, the central window looked straight out to sea, and those on the left and right commanded prospects along the shore to the north and south respectively. On the south, you saw the village of Burnstow. On the north, no houses were to be seen, but only the beach and the low cliff backing it. Immediately in front was a strip, not considerable, of rough grass dotted with old anchors, captains, and so forth, and a broad path, then the beach. Whatever may have been the original distance between the globe inn and the sea, not more than 60 yards now separated them. The rest of the population of the inn was, of course, a golfing one and included few elements to call for a special description. The most conspicuous figure was perhaps that of an ancient military secretary of a London club and possessed of a voice of incredible strength and of views of a pronouncedly Protestant type. (laughs) (laughs) This is the last year. I'm I'm switching to like Hardy Boys next year. (laughs) These were apt to find utterance after his attendance upon the ministrations of the vicar, an estimable man with inclinations toward a picturesque ritual, which he gallantly kept down as far as he could out of defense to East Anglian tradition. (sighs) Professor Parkins, one of whose principal characteristics was Pluck, spent the greater part of the day following his arrival at Bernstow in what he had called improving his game in company with this Colonel Wilson, and during the afternoon, whether the process of improvement were to blame or not, I am not sure. The colonel's demeanor assumed a coloring so lurid that even Parkins jibbed at the thought of walking home with him from the links. He determined after, sh- after a short and furtive look at that bristling mustache and those uncarnadine car- carn- features that it would be wiser to allow the influences of tea and tobacco to do what they could with a colonel before the dinner hour should render a meeting inevitable. What's up, buddy? You going to come in and listen to stories? I'm <laughs> I'm <bored. laughs> Me too, bud.
2: <laughs> do you want to come
0: in and listen to stories? No. Okay. I don't blame you. Can you go play your iPad for a little? Okay. Do
3: you want me to read your story? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I was not
0: no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Andy okay, now Andy's going to read my story and I'm going to take my leave.
2: <laughs> Merry Christmas. Where were, where were Merry
0: you? Christmas to one and all.
2: It's about uh, the links in a mustache. Okay, it's mustache. It's literally, yeah, I think that would be... Start at the top. Start at the top. Start <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> yeah, well, at no, I mean like
0: the top? Yeah. And all over. Right <laughs> at, right there. <laughs> you could just skip my story. I'm
3: like, No, before. no, I'll read it. We well, can't just set that all up and not yeah. have anything.
1: Plus, it's golf.
3: Yeah, I am here for the golf, guys. Yeah. yeah, probably. Oh well, should we open that door? Would that door make it? Yeah. <laughs> we can do this. got this. Hi guys, Andy,
1: Hi. wow.
0: Hi. Where were we? Oh, it's mustache. His
1: ways. Look- the
3: lakes. Simple.
1: His rippling mustache or something. Rippling
0: mustache, bristling
2: Yeah.
3: This he accomplished, I may say, in the most literal sense, for in picking his way from the links... Did we already read this? Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I wasn't paying attention, guys. Um, Didn't read any of that, did we?
2: He didn't get to Mr. Disney.
3: Yeah, Mr. Disney. Also, Fair Nature. Mr. Disney. Uh, it's embedded yeah, in the I mortar grown. So yeah, that's I don't okay. Think,
2: yeah, that doesn't sound familiar. Okay, here
3: we go. <laughs> partly in a gorse root and partly in a biggish stone, and over he went. When he got up and surveyed his surroundings, he found himself in a patch of somewhat broken ground, covered with small depressions and mounds. I feel like we skipped real far. Where did how did we get here? How did we I get here?
1: I'm not even sure what all those words are about. To be the candid.
3: Spent
2: greater than- Did you bump it? I might have.
3: Oh okay, so I remember this. He's saying, I'll cut all this out, guys. Don't worry. Mm. Professor Perkins. Did you cut it out for squad though? It in post. Nope. No. No. <laughs> yeah. Your squad remote is a squad. You get. <laughs> <laughs> I promise there's better stuff on the way. I'm trying to think of it. Uh, his arrival he called Colonel Wilson, Colonel Demeanor, Lurid. Figurative, look, bristling. Okay.
1: Bristling. (coughs) This is (laughs) where we are.
3: Bristling. I'm going to reread Spud. Okay. Okay. I I might walk home tonight along the beach, he reflected. Yes, and take a look. There will be light enough for that at the ruins of which Disney was talking. I don't exactly know where they are, by the way, but I expect I can hardly help stumbling on them. This he accomplished. This is how we get to that place. This yes, mm-hmm. he accomplished. This he accomplished, I may say, in the most literal sense. For in a in a for in picking his way from the links to the shingle beach, his foot caught partly in a gorse root and partly in a bigger stone, this all makes sense. It oh. makes
2: more sense now for context. Sure. And over he
3: went. It's when he, what do you know? <laughs> when he got up and surveyed his surroundings, he found himself in a patch of somewhat broken ground covered with small depressions and mounds. These latter when he came to examine them, proved to be simply masses of flints embedded in mortar and grown over with turf. He must quite rightly concluded, he quite rightly concluded, be on the site of the preceptory he had... What is this story even about? (laughs) He had promised to look at... It seemed not unlikely to reward the spade of the explorer. Enough of the foundations was probably left at no great depth to throw a good deal of light on the general plan. He remembered vaguely that the Templars to whom this site had belonged were in the habit of building round churches, and he thought a particular series of the humps or mounds near him appear to be arranged in something of a circular form. Few people can resist the temptation to try a little amateur research in a department quite outside their own. Hmm. Anyways. Oh, James what just
1: pulled th- us back in. <laughs>
3: yeah.
2: Templars? Only yeah, for the, only for the fa-
3: <laughs> satisfaction of showing how successfully they would have been had they only taken it up seriously. You know, he really, like, gets to the heart of what the holidays are about. <laughs> mm-hmm. Our professor, however, if he felt something of this mean desire, was also truly anxious to oblige Mr. Disney. So <laughs> it's Disney, right? Yeah. yeah story? It is. Right. Okay. <laughs> and Mr. Rogers. As yeah, well. Mr. Rogers, Mr. Disney. <laughs> so he, he paced with care the circular area he had he had note wait. Yeah, he had noticed and wrote down its rough dimensions in his pocketbook. Then he proceeded to examine an oblong eminence, an oblong eminence, which lay east of the center of the circle and seemed, to his thinking, likely to be the base of a platform or altar. At one end, the northern, a patch of turf was gone, removed by some boy or other creature.
2: Ferai not What? Yep. Mm.
3: Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) it might he thought be as well to probe the soil here for evidences of masonry and he took his out his knife and began scraping away the earth and now followed another little discovery a portion of soil fell inward as he scraped and disclosed a small cavity he lighted one match after another to help him see of what nature the hole was but the wind was too strong for all of By tapping and scratching the sides with his knife, however, he was able to make out that it must be an artificial hole in masonry. It was rectangular. The sides, top and bottom, if not actually plastered, were smooth and regular. Of course it was empty. No! As he withdrew the knife, he heard a metallic clink. And when he introduced his hand, it met a cylindrical object lying on the floor of the hole. Naturally enough, he picked it up, and when he brought it to the light, now fast fading, he could see that it, too, was of man's making, a metallic tube about four inches long, and evidently of some considerable age. This story is so long. Like I was up here, Wow. when we have this much more to go. Should I try to find the ghost part <laughs> well, you guys tell a story, <laughs> and we come back to this, and through the, the, magic, the magic of editing, of editing, you find oh. the ghost. Oh. I find the ghost because the there's a do. lot here. There's a lot.
2: That's ridiculous.
3: It's a small tome of its own.
1: Well, mm. you are the showrunner. Yeah. I you think we it. should
3: fi- find another story. Okay. okay, I'll just be here looking for right. ghosts.
1: You did a fine job of reading though, I must much. be Good job. said. Thank you. I was I was getting sucked into that.
3: There you go. I, I like the way it was written. <laughs> I don't know why Seth's always complaining about this. It's kind of fun. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Heather, what's your story?
2: All right. So <clears throat> my story is from a book that my friend just published. Uh, oh, Amanda nice. Woomer just published, or you may know her on Instagram as Spook Eats. Uh, a very Frightful Victorian Christmas, 12 Ghost Stories, and 6 Victorian Recipes. Oh, cool. Um, So one of the stories within that book is called A Strange Christmas Game by J.H. Riddle. Um, When she had forwarded this particular section to me, she said she chose this because it is a Christmas ghost story that actually takes place at Christmas. Mm. Also, it's not too long for a podcast. Wow. It's from... Perfectly suitable. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's from 1868, so right in the middle of the Victorian era. Um, A little bit of info on the author. J.H. Riddle's real name was Charlotte Riddle. She was a famous and extremely influential Irish-born author. She wrote over 50 books, novels, and short stories and became part owner and editor of St. James Magazine, a very successful literary journal in London in the 1860s. So, this is a strange Christmas game. By J. H. Riddle. Thanks to the death of a distant relative, I, John Lester, inherited the Martindale estate. When the news arrived, my sister Claire and I were the happiest pair in all of England. You may think it shocking. My sister and I thrilled at our sudden fortune upon the death of our own kinsman, Paul Lester. But we are not hypocrites. Nor ones to pretend to mourn a man that was as great a stranger to us as the Prime Minister, the Emperor of Russia, or any other human being so utterly removed from our extremely humble sphere of life. Paul Lester was as distant a relative as one could have. A man whom we had never seen, of whom we had heard very little and that little being unfavorable, and a man who never helped us despite our years living in poverty. His loss was most certainly our gain we had not lost a beloved or honored loved one. Rather, we gained lands, houses, wealth, and respect. Of course, Martindale was not much of an estate as far as country properties go. The Lester's who had resided in that region over the course of a few hundred years were anything but prudent. And by the time of Jeremy Lester, the last resident owner of the estate, Martindale had melted to a mere dot on the map of Bedfordshire. Along with the estate came a mystery surrounding Jeremy Lester no one knew what had become of him. On Christmas Eve long ago, he was sitting in the oak parlor of Martindale, and before dawn, he had vanished. According to the tale, one Mr. Worley, a dear friend of Jeremy Lester's, had sat playing cards with him until after midnight. Then he took his leave and rode home. After that, no one ever saw Jeremy Lester alive again. Shortly thereafter, Paul Lester took possession of the house, but he promptly shut up the hall, put in a caretaker, and never returned to his ancestral home. As years passed, people began to whisper, saying the house was haunted and that Paul Lester had seen something. The locals insisted that Mr. Jeremy walked at Martindale. They had seen him in the windows over the years, wandering through the empty halls of his once grand manor. All of these stories were repeated for our benefit when, 41 years after the disappearance of Jeremy Lester, Claire and I went down to inspect our inheritance. Upon our arrival, we met with the caretaker and his wife, who insisted that wild horses, or even wealth beyond her wildest dreams, could not draw her to the red bedroom, nor into the oak parlor after dark. There are things in those rooms that would make any Christian's hair stand on end. Stamping and swearing, Furniture knocking about, footsteps up the great staircase, along the corridor, and into the red bedroom. I believe Mr. Paul Lester met him once, and since then, the oak parlor has never been opened. Upon hearing her ghostly tale, the first thing I did was proceed to the oak parlor, open the shutters, and let the August sun stream into the haunted chamber. It was an old-fashioned, plainly furnished room with a large table in the center, a smaller one in the corner near the fireplace, chairs against the walls, and a dusty, moth-eaten carpet upon the floor. Paintings hung upon the walls, and the fireplace's brass fender was tarnished and battered. It was a simple, gloomy room that brightened the moment the sun shone through the windows. I knew once we, rec- <laughs> I knew once we redecorated it, the room would easily transform into a pleasant morning room. Before we set to work on repairing and redecorating our ancestral home, Claire and I decided to go abroad to take our long talked up holiday before the fine weather was gone. A lifetime of struggle made Claire wise, and she declared that we should take our pleasure while we could, for who knew what the next year might bring? So for several months, we wandered around the continent, loitering in Rouen, visiting galleries in Paris, and befriending our new neighbors in England, the Cronson family. Claire was less than agreeable with the Cronsons. There was a young woman in England Claire wanted me to think about seriously, and possibly marry, but Mr. Cronson had a daughter, Mabel, who was both handsome and attractive. Yes. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Claire's friend had liked poor John Lester, penniless artist. "'Miss Cronson had her eyes set on John Lester of Martingdale "'and would have turned away from the poor young artist I once was. "'I can see that plainly enough now. "'I may have proposed to Mabel if word of family tragedy had not arrived for them. "'The Cronsons quickly packed up and departed while Claire and I slowly returned to England. "'It was the middle of November when we arrived at Martingdale, "'and we found the place anything but romantic and pleasant.' The ghost stories we had laughed at while the sunshine flooded the rooms became more real when we had nothing but blazing fires and wax candles to dispel the gloom. They became even more real when servant after servant left us to seek work elsewhere. elsewhere. Realer still when the noises of the house grew more frequent, thumping, banging, and clattering. My dear reader, you are doubtless free from superstitious fantasies you doubt the existence of ghosts and only wish you could find a haunted house in which to spend the night. Which is all very brave and praiseworthy, but wait until you are left in a dreary, desolate, old country mansion filled with the most unexplainable sounds going on at all hours of the night. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No thanks. (laughs) At first, I believe the noises were produced by some, some thugs, intent to keep the house uninhabited. But over time, Claire and I came to the conclusion that the strange activity must be supernatural. We were practical people, and unlike our predecessors not having much money to live exactly where we liked, we decided to watch and see where we could trace the noises, and if it was back to a human. For nights and nights, we sat up till two or three o'clock in the morning. No logical explanation for the noises could be found. I decided to test a theory I had. On Christmas Eve, the anniversary of Mr. Jeremy Lester's disappearance, I would stay up and keep watch by myself in the red bedroom. In the darkness of the night, I sat in the red room. For over an hour, I might as well have been in my grave, for that's as much as I could see in the haunted chamber. As the minutes passed, I sat on, but still no sound broke the silence. I was weary with many nights watching and tired of my solitary vigil. I slipped into a light slumber from which I was awakened by hearing the door softly open. John, my sister whispered. John, are you here? Yes, Claire, I answered. What are you doing up at this hour? Come downstairs, she replied. They are in the oak parlor. I did not need any explanation as to whom she meant. We crept downstairs together. No mouse could have pursued its way along the corridor with greater silence and caution than the pair of us. By the open door of the oak room claire paused we both looked in the room we had left in the darkness was illuminated with a bright wood fire blazing on the hearth we could see candles along the mantel, and the small table was pulled away from its usual corner and two men sat at it playing cribbage we could see the face of the younger player he was about 25 years old with the mischievous face of a man who liked to live wickedly he was dressed in the costume of a bygone period His hair was powdered, and around his wrists were ruffles of lace. On his little finger, there sparkled a ring. On the front of his shirt, a diamond gleamed, and on each of his shoes, diamond buckles. It was at that moment, in the amber glow of the fire, that I stared upon the face of my ancestor, Jeremy Lester. It would be difficult for me to say how I knew this, how in a moment, I identified the features of the player with those of a man who had been missing for 41 years. 41 years, that very day. As we continued to watch, I couldn't help but think that Jeremy Lester looked like someone who had just returned from some great party and decided to return home and play a game of cards with a dear friend. He sat opposite the door but never once lifted his eyes to it. His attention was focused on the cards. For a time, there was complete silence in the oak room, broken only by the monotonous counting of the game. In the doorway we stood, holding our breath, terrified, yet fascinated by the scene playing out before us. The ashes fell from the hearth softly like snow. We could hear the rustle of the cards as they were dealt out and fell upon the table. We listened to the count. 15-1, 15-2, and so on. No other words were spoken until the player whose face we could not see exclaimed, I win. The game is mine. Jeremy Lester took up the cards, looking them over before flinging the whole pack into his guest's face. Cheater! Liar! There was a struggle. Chairs were flung out of the way, cards flew through the air, and the two men fought, their passionate voices mingling so that we could not hear a sentence of what they were shouting. All of a sudden, Jeremy Lester marched from the room in such a hurry he almost touched us where we stood. He left the room, stomped up the staircase, and disappeared into the red room before returning with a pair of rapiers under his arm. When he re-entered the room, he gave the other man his choice of weapons before flinging the window open and walking forth into the cold night air. Claire and I followed. We went through the garden and down a narrow winding path to a smooth piece of grass sheltered from the chill by a grove of trees. By this time, the moon was shining bright and we could distinctly see Jeremy Lester measuring along the ground. When you say three, he said to the man whose back was still toward us, one, began the cheating companion two but before our kinsman had the slightest suspicion of his friend's plan the rapier pierced through jeremy lester's breast at the sight of the cowardly treachery claire screamed at that moment the phantoms vanished the moon was obscured behind a cloud and we were standing in the shadow of the trees shivering with cold and terror but we knew at last what had become of the late owner of martingdale That he had fallen, not in a fair fight, but foully murdered by a false friend. When I awoke on Christmas morning, it was to see a white world. Behold, the ground, trees, and shrubs, all laden and covered with snow. There was snow everywhere, such snow as no person could remember having fallen in 41 years. It was on just such a Christmas that, that Mr. Jeremy disappeared. I overheard the caretaker whisper to his wife. For the new year, Claire and I were dining at Cronson Park, when all of a sudden, my sister dropped the glass of water she was carrying to her lips and exclaimed, look, John, there he is, while pointing to a portrait hanging on the wall. I saw him for an instant when he turned his head toward the door as Jeremy Lester left it. That's him, I'm sure of it. Of what followed after this revelation, I have only the vaguest recollection. Servants scurried about, Mrs. Cronson dropped to her chair in a fit of hysterics the daughters gathered around their mother claire begged to be taken away mr cronson bumbled through some kind of explanation he told me that the portrait claire identified was of his wife's father mr worley the last person to see jeremy lester alive he's an old man now mr Cronson finished a man of over 80 who has confessed everything to me i trust you won't bring further disgrace upon the Cronson family by making this matter public I promised, but the story gradually oozed out and the Cronsons left the country. Years have now passed, and I am still the resident master of Martindale. The young lady Claire wanted me to think seriously of is now my wife and the mother of my children. Sadly, my sister never returned to Martindale, even though I assure her that there are no strange noises in the house anymore. No footsteps on the stairs, no furniture banging about, and no phantoms in the night, not even on Christmas Eve. Oh, I
1: like
3: that a lot.
1: Yeah. Yay. That was good.
2: Thanks, Amanda.
1: Fantastic.
2: Yeah. That was fun.
3: That's cool, because you think of ghosts as always, or like apparitions always as being people who are dead, and that guy was, you know, still there. True. Still alive. Yeah. Was, that's true. So what? what is it really? <laughs> We're going deep now. Right. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> ah. yeah.
3: I didn't find the ghost part. There I mean, there, there is, but it's like you need context, like, with everything. And Okay. So, yes. I don't have anything else. I was going to maybe read, it's not really Christmas, but I was maybe going to read, like, I was thinking of, like, spooky older stories I know. So I was maybe going to read Devil and Tom Walker by Washington Irving, but that's a little long. And then I thought of The Yellow Wallpaper. That's also long. But the Yellow Wallpaper is really good. Mm-hmm. So a little... Extra, if you guys want to check that out right? There. Yeah,
1: it's your homework. That, that's,
3: yeah. your homework. If you want to read <laughs> some. Yeah. By, by Charlotte Perkins Stetson is like great. It's a great spooky story. Mm. Excellent. That's that's what I'm here for, guys. To tell you things to go and do <laughs> after you listen.
2: Yeah, go, go work. How about you, Mark? Well,
1: I have a story. It's by one of the most celebrated Canadian authors there is, L.M. Montgomery. Mm. And this is not set at Christmas time but it does describe precisely the sort of setting that we're talking about which is people gathered around telling stories purposefully to try and scare each other. Mm-hmm. And so this story is entitled The House Party at Smoky Island. Mm-hmm. When Madeline Stanwick asked me to join her house party at Smoky Island, I was not at first disposed to do so. It was too early in the season, for one thing. For another, there would be mosquitoes. One mosquito can keep me more awake than a bad conscience, and there are always millions of mosquitoes in Muskoka. No, no, the season for them is over, Madeline assured me. Madeline would say anything to get her way. The mosquito season is never over in Muskoka, I said, as grumpily as anyone could speak to Madeline. They thrive up there at zero. And even if by some miracle there are no mosquitoes, I've no hankering to be chewed to pieces by black flies. Even Madeline did not dare to say there would be no black flies, so she wisely fell back on her Madelinity. Please come for my sake, she said wistfully. It wouldn't be a real party for me if you weren't there, Jim, darling. I'm Madeline's favorite cousin. 20 years her senior, and she calls everybody darling when she wants to get something out of him, not but that Madeline, Ah, but this story is not about Madeline. It is about an occurrence which took place at Smoky Island. None of us pretends to understand it, except the judge, who pretends to understand everything. But he really understands it no better than the rest of us. His latest explanation is that we were all hypnotized and in the state of hypnosis saw and remembered things we couldn't otherwise have seen or remembered but even he cannot explain who or what hypnotized us i decided to yield but not all at once has your smoky island housekeeper still got that detestable white parrot i asked Yes, but it is much better mannered than it used to be, assured Madeline. You know you've always liked her cat. We'll be in your party. I'm rather finicky as to the company I keep. Madeline grinned. You know I never invite anyone but interesting people to my parties, I bowed to the implied compliment, with a dull one or two to show off the sparkle of the rest of us. I did not bow this time. Consuelo Anderson, Aunt Alma, Professor Tennant and his wife, Dick Lane, Todd Newman, Senator Malcolm and Mrs. Senator, Old Nosey, Min Ingram, Judge Warden, Mary Harland, and a few bright young things to amuse me. I ran over the list in my mind, not disappointingly. Consuelo was a very large girl with a BA degree. I liked her because she could sit still for a longer time than any woman I know. <laughs> what? <laughs> Tennant was professor of something he called the New Pathology, an insignificant little man with a gigantic intellect.
3: This guy doesn't like anyone. <laughs> Scrooge.
1: Dick Lane was one of those coming men who never seem to arrive, but a frank, friendly, charming fellow enough. Mary Harland was a comfortable spinster, Todd, an amusing little fop, Aunt Alma, a sweet silvery-haired thing like a whistler mother. Old Nosey, whose real name was Miss Alexander, and who never let anyone forget she was nearly sailed on the Lusitania. And the Malcolms had no terror for me, although the Senator always called his wife kittens. And Judge Warden was an old crony of mine. I did not like Min Ingram, who had a rapier-like tongue, but she could be ignored, along with the bright young things. Is that all? I asked cautiously. Well, Dr. Armstrong and Brenda, of course, said Madeline, eyeing me as if it were not at all, of course. Is that wise, I said slowly. Madeline crumpled. Of course not, she said miserably, it will likely spoil everything, but John insists on it. You know he and Anthony Armstrong have been pals all their lives, and Brenda and I have always been chummy. It would look so funny if we didn't have them. I don't know what has got into her. We all know Anthony never poisoned Suzette. Brenda doesn't know it, apparently, I said. Well, she ought to, snapped Madeline, as if Anthony could have poisoned anyone. But that's one of the reasons I particularly want you to come. Ah, now we're getting at it. But why me? Because you've more influence over Brenda than anyone else. Oh, yes. Yes, you have. If you could get her to open up, talk to her, you might help her. Because... If something doesn't help her soon she'll be beyond help you know that I knew it well enough the case of the Anthony Armstrong's was worrying us all we saw a tragedy being enacted before our eyes and we could not lift a finger to help for Brenda would not talk and Anthony had never talked the story now five years old was known to all of us of course Anthony's first wife had been Suzette Wilder, Of the dead, nothing but good, so I will say of Suzette only that she was beautiful and rich. Very beautiful and very rich. Luckily, her fortune had come to her unexpectedly by the death of an aunt and cousin after she had married Anthony, so that he could not be accused of fortune hunting. He had been wildly in love with Suzette at first, but after they had been married a few years, I don't think he had much affection left for her. None of the rest of us had ever had any to begin with. When word came back from California, where Anthony had taken her one winter for her nerves, that she was dead, I don't suppose anyone felt any regret, nor any suspicion when we heard that she had died from an overdose of chloral. Rather mysteriously to be sure, for Suzette was neither careless nor suicidally inclined, There were some ugly rumors, especially when it became known that Anthony had inherited her entire fortune under her will, but nobody ever dared say much openly. We who knew and loved Anthony never paid any heed to the hints, and when two years later he married Brenda Young, we were all glad. Anthony, we said, would have some real happiness now. For a time, he did have it nobody could doubt that he and Brenda were ecstatically happy. Brenda was a sincere spiritual creature, lovely after a fashion totally different than Suzette. Suzette had golden hair and eyes as cool and green as floor spar. Brenda had slim dark distinction, hair that blended with the dusk, eyes so full of twilight that it was hard to say whether they were blue or gray. She loved Anthony so terribly that sometimes I thought she was tempting the gods. Then, slowly, subtly, remorselessly, the change set in. We began to feel that there was something wrong, very wrong, between the Armstrongs. They were no longer quite so happy. They were not happy at all. They were wretched Brenda's old delightful laugh was never heard and Anthony went about his work with an air of abstraction that didn't please his patients. his practice had fallen off a while before Suzette's death but it had picked up again and grown wonderfully now it began dropping and the worst of it was that Anthony didn't seem to care of course he didn't need it from a financial point of view but he had always been so keenly interested in his work I don't know if it were merely surmise or whether Brenda had let a word slip, but we all knew or felt that she was possessed by a horrible suspicion. There was some whisper of an anonymous letter full of vile innuendos that had started the trouble. I never knew the rights of that, but I did know that Brenda had become a haunted woman. Had. Anthony given Suzette that overdose of chloral given it purposely if she had been the kind of woman who talks things out some of us might have saved her but she wasn't it's my belief that she never said a word to Anthony of the cold horror of distrust that was poisoning her life but he must have felt she suspected him and between them was the chill and shadow of a thing that must not be spoken of At the time of Madeline's house party, the state of affairs between the Armstrongs was such that Brenda had almost reached the breaking point. Anthony's nerves were tense, too, and his eyes were almost as tragic as hers. We were all ready to hear that Brenda had left him or done something more desperate still, and nobody could do a thing to help, not even I, in spite of Madeline's foolish hopes. I couldn't go to Brenda and say, Look here, you know, Anthony never thought of such a thing as poisoning Suzette. After all, in spite of our surmises, the trouble might be something else altogether. And if she did suspect him, what proof could I offer her that would root the obsession out of her mind? I hardly thought the Armstrongs would go to Smoky Island, but they did. When Anthony turned on the wharf and held out his hand to assist Brenda from the motorboat, she ignored it, stepping swiftly off without any assistance and running up through the rock garden and the pointed firs. I saw Anthony go very white. I felt a little sick myself. If matters had come to such a pass that she shrank from his mere touch, disaster was near. Smoky Island was in a little blue Muskoka lake and the house was called the Wigwam, probably because nothing on earth could be less like the Wigwam. The Stanwyck money had made a wonderful place of it, but even the Stanwyck money could not buy fine weather. Madeline's party was a flop. It rained every day more or less for the week, and though we all tried heroically to make the best of all things, I don't think I ever spent a more unpleasant time. The parrot's manners were no better, in spite of Madeline's assurances. Min Ingram had brought an aloof, disdainful dog with her that everyone hated because he despised us all. Min herself kept passing out needle-like insults when she saw anyone in danger of being comfortable. I thought the bright young things seemed to hold me responsible for the weather. All of our nerves got edgy, except Aunt Alma's. Nothing ever upset Aunt Alma. She prided herself a bit on that. On Saturday, the weather wound up with a regular downpour and a wind that rushed out of the black-green pines to lash the wigwam and then rushed back like a maddened animal. The air was as full of torn flying leaves as of rain, and the lake was a splutter of tossing waves. This charming day ended in a dank, streaming night. And yet, things had seemed a bit better than any day yet. Anthony was away. He had got some mysterious telegram just after breakfast, had taken the small motorboat, and gone to the mainland. I was thankful, for I felt I could no longer endure seeing a man's Soul tortured as his was. Brenda had to keep to her room all day on the good old plea of a headache. I won't say it wasn't a relief. We all felt the strain between her and Anthony like a tangible thing. Something, something is going to happen, Madeline kept saying to me. She was really worse than the parrot, and I told her so. After dinner, we all gathered around the fireplace in the hall, where a cheerful fire of white birchwood was glowing, for although it was June, the evening was cold. I settled back with a sigh of relief. After all, nothing lasted forever, and this infernal house party would be over on Monday. Besides, it was really quite comfortable and cheerful here, despite rattling windows and wailing winds and rain swept panes. Madeline turned out the electric lights and the firelight was kind to the women, who all looked quite charming. Some of the bright young things sat cross-legged on the floor with arms around one another, quite indiscriminately as far as sex was concerned, except one languid, sophisticated creature in orange velvet and long amber earrings, who sat on a low stool with a lapful of silken housekeeper's cat, giving everyone an excellent view of the bones in her spine. Min's dog posed haughtily on the rug, and the parrot in his cage was quiet, for him, only telling us once in a while that he or someone else was devilish clever. (laughs) Mrs. Howie, the housekeeper, insisted on keeping him in the hall, and Madeline had to wink at it because it was hard to get a housekeeper in Muskoka, even for a wigwam. The judge was looking like a chuckle because he had solved a jigsaw puzzle that had baffled everyone and the professor and the senator who had been arguing stormily all day were basking in each other's regard for a foeman worthy of his steel. Consuelo was sitting still, as usual. Mrs. Tennant and Aunt Alma were knitting pullovers. Kittens, her fat hands folded over her satin stomach, was surveying her senator adoringly and Miss Nosey was taking everything in. We were, for the time being, a contented, congenial bunch of people, and I did not see why Madeline should have suddenly proposed that we all tell a ghost story. But she did. It was an ideal night for ghost stories, she averred. She hadn't heard any for ages, and she understood that everybody had had at least one supernatural occurrence in his or her life. I haven't, growled the judge contemptuously. I suppose, said Professor Tennant a little belligerently, that you would call anyone an ass who believed in ghosts. The judge carefully fitted his fingertips together before he replied, Oh dear no! I would not so insult asses. Of course, if you don't believe in ghosts, they can't happen, said Consuelo. Some people are able to see ghosts and some are not, announced Dick Lane. It's simply a gift. A gift I was not dowered with, said Kittens complacently. Mary Harlan shuddered. What a dreadful thing it would be if the dead really came back. From ghasties and ghoulies and lang-legged beasties and things that go bump in the night, good Lord, deliver us, quoted Todd flippantly. But Madeline was not to be sidetracked her little elfish face under its crown of russet hair, was alive with determination. We're going to spook a bit, she said resolutely. This is just the sort of night for ghosts to walk. Only, of course, they can't walk here because the wigwam isn't haunted, I'm sorry to say. Wouldn't it be heavenly to live in a haunted house? Come now, everyone must tell a ghost story. Professor Tennant, you lead off. Something nice and creepy, please. (laughs) (laughs) To my surprise, the professor did lead off, although Mrs. Tennant's expression plainly informed us that she didn't approve of juggling with ghosts. He told a very good story, too, punctuated with snorts from the judge about a house he knew which had been haunted by the voice of a dead child who joined in every conversation bitterly and vindictively. The child had, of course, been ill-treated and murdered, Its body was eventually found under the hearthstone of the library. Then Dick told a tale about a dead dog who avenged his master and Consuelo amazed me by spinning a really gruesome yarn of a ghost who came to the wedding of her lover with her rival. Consuelo said she knew the people. Todd knew a house in which you heard voices and footfalls or no voices or footfalls could be, and even Aunt Alma told of a white lady with a cold hand who asked you to dance with her. if you were reckless enough to accept the invitation, you never lost the feeling of cold in your hand. This chilly apparition was always garbed in the costume of the 70s. "'Fancy a ghost in a crinoline,' giggled a bright young thing. Min Ingram, of all people, had seen a ghost and took it quite seriously. "'Well, show me a ghost and I'll believe in it,' said the judge with another snort. "'Isn't he devilish clever?' croaked the parrot. Just at this point, Brenda drifted downstairs and sat down behind us all, her tragic eyes burning out of her white face. I had a feeling that there, in that calm, untroubled scene, full of good-humored, tolerant, amused, commonplace people, a human heart was burning at a stake in agony. Something fell over us with Brenda's coming. Min Ingram's dog suddenly whined and flattened himself out on the rug. It occurred to me that it was the first time I had ever seen him looking like a real dog. I wondered idly, what had frightened him? The housekeeper's cat sat up, its back bristling, slid from the orange velvet lap and slunk out of the hall. I had a queer sensation in the roots of wet hair I have left, so I turned hastily to the slim dark girl on the oak settle to my right. You haven't told us a ghost story yet, Christine. It's your turn. Christine smiled. I saw the judge looking admiringly at her ankles.
2: Sheathed in (laughs) what I believe
1: (laughs) are called chiffon hose.
2: (laughs) That time period appropriate.
1: Yeah, the judge always had an eye for a pretty ankle. (laughs) 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 Racy. Yeah. As for me, I was wondering why I couldn't recall Christine's last name and why I felt as if I had been impelled in some odd way to make that commonplace remark to her. Do you remember how firmly Aunt Elizabeth believed in ghosts, said Christine, and how angry it used to make her when I laughed at the idea? I am... wiser now. "'I remember,' said the senator in a dreamy way. "'It was your Aunt Elizabeth's money "'that went to the first Mrs. Armstrong, wasn't it?' "'said one of the bright young things, nicknamed Tweezers. "'It was an abominable thing for anyone to say "'right there before Brenda. "'But nobody seemed horrified. "'I had another odd feeling that it had to be said "'and who but Tweezers would say it. "'I had another feeling.' that ever since Brenda's entrance, every trifle was important. Every tone was of profound significance. Every word had a hidden meaning. Was I developing nerves? Yes, said Christine evenly. Do you suppose Suzette Armstrong really took that overdose of chloral on purpose? Went on Tweezers, unbelievably. Not being near enough to Tweezers to assassinate her, I looked at Brenda, but Brenda gave no sign of having heard. She was staring fixedly at Christine. No, said Christine, I wondered how she knew, but there was no question whatever in my mind that she did know it. She spoke as one having authority. Suzette had no intention of dying, and yet she was doomed. Although she never suspected it, she had an incurable disease which would have killed her in a few months. Nobody knew that except Anthony and me. She had come to hate Anthony so. She was going to change her will the very next day, leave everything away from him. She told me so. I was furious. Anthony, who had spent his life doing good to suffering creatures, was to be left. Poor and struggling again after his practice had been all shot to pieces by Suzette's goings-on? I had loved Anthony ever since I had known him. He didn't know it. Suzette did. Trust her for that. She used to twit me with it. Not that it mattered. I knew he would never care for me. But I saw my chance to do something for him, and I took it. I gave Suzette that overdose of chloral. I loved him enough for that and for this. Somebody screamed. I've never known whether it was Brenda or not, and Alma, who was never upset over anything, was huddled in her chair in hysterics, kittens, her fat figure shaking, was clinging to her senator, whose foolish amiable face was gray, absolutely gray. Min Ingram was on her knees and the judge was trying to keep his hands from shaking by clenching them together. His lips were moving, and I know I caught the word God. As for tweezers and all the rest of her gang, they were no longer bright young things, but simply shivering, terrified children. I felt sick. Very, very sick, because there was no one on the oak settle, and none of us had ever known or heard of the girl I had called Christine. At that moment the hall door opened and a dripping Anthony entered. Brenda flung herself hungrily against him, wet as he was, Anthony, Anthony forgive me, she sobbed. Something good to see came into Anthony's worn face. Have you been frightened, darling, he said tenderly, I'm sorry I was so late. There was really no danger, I, wa- I waited to get an answer to my wire to Los Angeles. You see, I got word this morning that Christine Latham had been killed in a motor accident yesterday evening. She was Suzette's second cousin and nurse. A dear, loyal little thing. I was very fond of her. I'm sorry you've had such an anxious evening, sweetheart. And that is The House Party at Smoky Island by Ellen Montgomery.
3: That was
2: good.
3: Awesome. <laughs> I like it. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that does it for Christmas ghosts. That's it for yeah. Christmas ghosts. Um, if you're not yeah. scared by now
1: <laughs> or at least a little bit creeped out, yeah. I don't think there's anything else we could do for
3: you. Yeah. That. That's it. <laughs> so leave mail at Monstropolis Mail gmail.com mm-hmm. um follow us on instagram at stm underscore broadcasting underscore network and then mm-hmm. like us on facebook at stmbn for small town monsters broadcasting network which may be the first time that that's ever said actually on the yeah,
2: show i believe so i yeah because um, i was like what <laughs> and,
1: and it, watch the lore you yeah. know oh,
2: watch yeah. the lore you know Before you know uh like subscribe become a channel member. Yeah, here mm.
3: on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast, leave a review somewhere. We are covering all the
2: bases. If today. you
1: are looking for that last minute Christmas gift
2: <laughs> for us, for, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> please leave us an amazing review. Yeah,
3: there's also review. the Small Town Monsters shop. You yeah. have Monstropolis merch on there. Mm-hmm. That's normally said in the description. It's like, where your yeah. Monstropolis fandom. Yeah. But now we're saying it.
1: We're saying it now. Yeah. Um All in support of a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Yeah.
3: Night. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas.